But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy, have all, and their envy have all perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at, at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. And again, I saw under the sun the races, not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me that there was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and by his wisdom, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. When the uh, when it was announced that the final Harry Potter book was due to come out, Fiona's already smiling just because I said Harry Potter. If I say Harry Potter, do other people smile? There we go. How about Lord of the Rings? There we go. Other, other geeks in the house this morning. When the final Harry Potter book was announced uh, that it was going to be released, the UK charity Childline, which is like the NSPCC, hired and trained more counsellors. 
Why? To deal with the grief the children would be expressing once they finished the final book. Did you know that? Well, all of these grieving children, as they read the last page, they think it's over. The end. No more Harry Potter. Unless, you know, the, the play's been adapted to the book. You know what I mean. It's a grief. I remember, uh, are there West Wing fans in the house? Yeah, Fiona's still nodding. I love the West Wing. First time I ever watched the West Wing, got to the final episode, episode called Tomorrow, uh, and the last scene uh, played, and the plane flew off into the distance, and I was so upset that it was over that I immediately ran to season one, disc one, and stuck it straight back into the DVD player. I was like, I had like a karmic wheel of West Wing. I had reincarnation going on with Bartlett and the boys. Some of us even get sad when it comes to the end of a meal. You got a few nods there. Or is that just me? You know, you got a, you got a really good steak. You're saving that last bit. And you're like, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're the one that's doing it, but still you're the one that's getting sad. You're like, oh, what's going to happen now? What will my life mean once this steak is gone? Maybe perhaps more seriously, you know, some of us are contemplating, you know, finishing up with a job or finishing university, and there's, there's end points coming. Things that will never be the same again. You think back even to when you were in, in school, in high school. You think back to, to those really close friends, and maybe some have endured, but actually a whole bunch of relationships just actually just ended. And that's kind of just the way it goes. And it's sad, and you, know, you see them again, and you maybe pick up where you left off, but maybe actually it's just not quite the same. That's the thing about stories. They tend to end. The stories of the people that we love end. You think of our elderly relatives, our elderly grandparents who have seen a world war, who have maybe even seen the birth of our nation, their stories end. One of the things I think about, about my, my grandfather, who died about nearly a decade ago, and I, I loved him dearly, is that I wish I knew more of his stories. I was kind of too young and not all that bothered to ask him. The sad thing is that, that these people that have such stories, that one day death will come and etch the words, the end, on the book of their lives. And perhaps the most tragic thing about that is that you can never open it again. That once death writes those final words, there's no reopening the book. There's no putting disc one back in. Our story will end. If Ecclesiastes tells us anything, it tells us that, right? Those of us who have been, who have been um, going through, perhaps you might even think, enduring our series in Ecclesiastes, you think, okay, I get it. Death is a reality. Thanks very much. 
What have you got for me next? No, we're staying here. It's easy to switch off at this point. You think, yeah, 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 thanks for that. This is my fifth week uh, where you're telling me about death. You think that the writer of Ecclesiastes is some crackpot who's obsessed with death and futility, like, like Eeyore who's been listening to too much emo music and reading too much Robert Frost and Sylvia Plath and things like that. Like He just needs to get out and go and have a beer. Uh, but actually, he, need, he is trying to drum something into our heads because we're prone to forget and we're prone to minimize, especially when it comes to death. Nobody likes to think about it. The title that the writer adopts for himself is the word koheleth, which means teacher. He's not a crackpot, he's a teacher. I know that you had some teachers who were crackpots, and that's not mutually exclusive, but he is a teacher. He is our guide. He's not telling us something just to make us feel bad, not just to ruin our day, not just to rub it in. He's teaching us. He's teaching us about life about where meaning is found. He wants us to learn from the reality of death. Because you see, when we learn about the reality of death, that actually shapes how we live. All of us live under the shadow of death. This is an education point. So we're basically asking two questions this morning. What can we learn about the reality of death and how should we live? The how should we live question is arguably more important because the reality is that while all of us die, not all of us will truly live, and that really is tragic. So the first question, what can we learn about the reality of death? First, it's worth noting uh, back in verse 1 where he talks about how he's examined it all. He's been looking carefully and intently into this topic of study, which is really quite contrasting to us because, like I just mentioned, we spend our time not thinking about these things. Not even Christians do. Never mind anyone else. But the whole world is kind of arrayed around us to get, to get us to not think about the deeper questions. We entertain ourselves out of those discussions. We deafen ourselves by constant input in order to avoid the deeper questions of life. We run away from those conversations. We stick our head in the sand like the ostrich. And yet the teacher launches a sustained investigation into what we would prefer to avoid. So, it's worth listening to what he has to say. first thing that we see is that death changes what we think of ourselves and what we think of others. We like to look out at the world. We like to look at the people around us and think that the, the world is uh, full of good people, like, like me and like you. We like to think that there's good people and there's bad people. And the good people, like me, deserve good things. And you. And the bad people deserve bad things. That's how we like to see it. Bad thing? Death. What should bad people get? Death. But here, all die. All die. All have the same fate. 
It is an evil under the sun, verse 4. Do you see that? It seems terribly unjust. And what we noted a few weeks ago, just to bring those of you who are just coming in the first time around this week, this little phrase, under the sun, it, it denotes what life looks like if you absent God out of the picture. You take God out, and that's life under the sun. Whoops. And he looks at this thing of how good people get death and bad people get death, and he's saying, this is a grievous evil. And so it is, if it's under the sun. If you take God out of the picture, then it is terribly unjust that those who are good get death as well as those who are bad. But the reality is that you cannot absent God from the picture. Death is not arbitrary. It is not unjust. It is the result of evil. Verse 3. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil. You see, we prefer to think of, of evil or of Uh, to use a Bible word, sin, as something that's out there. as something that exists in, in other people, in the really bad people. But the diagnosis of the Bible is that evil things happen because they're an outworking of what our hearts are like. There's a man called James Waller who is a professor of genocide and Holocaust studies in New England, in the University of New England in the United States. Uh, Again, not a a terribly uh, uplifting area of study. But James Waller wrote a book called Becoming Evil, uh, in which he's talking about uh, Nazi Germany. And his thesis of the book is that uh, it was not a whole nation of psychopaths or sociopaths, rather, that committed the Holocaust, that it was ordinary people like you and me. The reviewers of the book went to great lengths to show that this idea could not possibly be right. That there had to be something pathologically wrong with every German in 1939 and onwards. Why did they do that? Why did they go to such great lengths to show this can't possibly be true? Because if it is, it says something about all of us. Something very uncomfortable about all of us. Right? The reality is, sadly that James Waller, professor of genocide and Holocaust studies, is actually much closer to the biblical diagnosis than his critics. Death is God's terrible assessment of us and of our world. It is a great indicator that we are not part of the solution, but part of the problem. It is a reminder to all of us that the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And what do we do? We minimize death. We say, he's not dead. He's just in the other room. Nonsense. 
Nobody who has lost somebody who they really love really believes that. They might trot it out, but they don't really believe that. But we minimize. We say, uh, in, the words of, uh, in the words of Gandalf, death is not the end, just a path of another one that we all must take. I'll be doing impressions after the service. You can stick around. We explain it away. Say it's just a natural part of life. There's nothing a certain. Uh, there's only two things in life that are certain: death and taxes. And we try to avoid it. We blot it out. We run away. We're confronted with this reality now, as a teaching point. We're confronted with the reality of death now, so that when it does inevitably come close to us red and tooth and claw, when we, are, uh, when we cannot run away, when we cannot avoid it, that we won't be shipwrecked, that our faith won't be so disabled that we run away from the God who loves us. That's why the writer of the Ecclesiastes encourages us, look, just think about this now, because it will help you in the future. These are not, these are not uplifting sermons necessarily. They're not kind of, oh, I feel really good about myself. And, you know, uh, Mark's a great therapeutic preacher that just kind of massages my ego and then I go out to lunch. I will try and do that maybe in the next sermon series. But for now, what this is, it's like ballast in your boat. You need something heavy, something weighty, in the boat of your life so that when things go wrong, extend the metaphor, when the storms come, you ain't going to get capsized. That's why we face up to the reality of death. I still hope you go out and have a good lunch because that's the second point. You see it? Verse 7 onwards, that now that we've faced up to the reality of death, that it changes how we view ourselves and others, that it's not good people and bad people, that it's God's just punishment, His condemnation on sin and evil. Now that we, when we own up to that, when we see that death is an unavoidable reality, what should we do? How should we live? We should take every moment, every event, and every relationship that we enjoy as a gift, because that's what it is. That these things that the writer talks about in verse 7 onwards, they come from the hand of God. And the writer, while he is talking about death, he encourages us to live our lives. I read a, an amusing quote uh, this week, and I forgot to put down who it was attributed to, so I apologize for that. It says, uh, never before have lives been so less lived and so much chronicled. Speaking about the Twitter, Facebook generation, never before have lives been so less lived and so much chronicled. The writer of the Ecclesiastes is saying, Look, don't, waste your, don't waste your time, don't waste your life on stuff that doesn't matter. Live it. Enjoy it. It is God's gift to you. You see, while death shows us that there is a, a judgment to come, that there is a reckoning, 
that God will sort out all of the injustice? Well, death shows us that. All of the things in verse 7 and onwards that we get to enjoy, they show us God's gracious character, that He gives good things, and that too points us forward to something better. If death points us forward to the future reality of judgment, then these good gifts from God, they too point us forward to the reality of life. Put it more starkly, if one points us forward to hell, the other points us forward to heaven. And none of these things come about by chance. They come from God and they point us to God. They show us what God has in store for all of us who trust in Him. So in light of the future, what does the teacher do? He encourages us to live. It starts off in verse 4 and 5 to say that there's hope, there's hope in life. That while we live under the shadow of death, it's not in hopeless despair. Then he uses this analogy about a dead dog and a, uh, or a, a living dog or a dead lion. Some of you are probably doggy people. And you don't like the idea of, uh, of kind of bagging on dogs and thinking that. Uh, but in this culture, uh, dogs were kind of the lowest of the low, and the lion was the regal animal. So he's kind of saying it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. That there's still hope. While you're drawing breath, there's still hope. There's still things to be rejoiced in in your life. And so he says, eat your food. Eat your food with joy, with gladness. Go enjoy that steak. Don't be sad when it's over. There might even be another one. Maybe not that night. Maybe, you know, tomorrow or next week. Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Or if it's not wine, like your orchard thieves or whatever it is you prefer. Drink it with gladness. Enjoy the world that God has made. Again, just pause on that. Is that something you expect the Bible to say? We tend to assume that uh, Christians are the miserable people. I come from the land of miserable Christians. It's about an hour north of here. I came down here to show you that we're not all like that. People assume that that's what we're like, and yet it's right here. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with gladness. The next time you sit down for a pint or a glass of Merlot, or whatever it is you prefer, be glad just for a moment. It's a gracious gift from God. It's God showing you what He's like. As I often say, food is God's love made tasty. So enjoy it. And so he goes on to say about white garments and an oily head. Some of us kind of put cream on stuff to have an oily head. What is he getting on here? Why have we got to have uh, white garments and oil on our head? Well, white is probably easier to understand. It's uprightness. It's purity. It's walking in righteousness. It's saying don't be, don't be, de- don't be deceitful and underhanded. Put a bit more bluntly, don't be a jerk. Be 
be upright. Allow people to look at your life and say, you know what? He's a good guy. She's a good guy. Might not believe everything that they believe, but you know what? They're, they're a nice person. I like being around them. Let your garments always be white. Your oily head? Well, I had to do a little bit of research on this, and I think the one that, I, that, I come, that I'm coming down on is that apparently, and we don't do this, but apparently if you were to go around to somebody's house for dinner, back, you know, 3,000 years ago when this was written, if you go around the house for dinner and, and the host uh, wanted to honor you, wanted to kind of say, you know, Abby, you're, you're just like, you're my favorite. I love having you around for dinner. What, I, what he would do is he'd get a bottle of olive oil and he'd tip it over your head. Do you want to come around for lunch? No. <laughs> He's basically saying, you're a good friend. I am honoring you in this moment. Wouldn't it be great to live a life where, where people appreciate and value our friendship? When we, like, think of your friends, how they're closer than family often. The friends are the family that we choose. We love good friends. Wouldn't we want that to be said of us? Don't worry if you come around to our house and I'm standing there with the olive oil. I'm only, you know, making a salad or something. He goes on to say to love, verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love or the other way around with the husband whom you love. Basically saying, love and be loved. And to work hard, to pursue excellence. Again, it's kind of, especially for students, um, you know, pastors can stand up here or, you know, Christian student, Christian student workers could stand up and say, uh, you know, you need to be far more committed to, uh, to the Christian union than you are. And it's almost kind of, take a, take a hit on your degree class in order to come and, and serve here. Yeah, no. You've been gifted. Pursue excellence. That's the way you're going to glorify God. I'm not saying don't be involved in, in CU. I'm not saying don't serve in the local church. Please serve in the local church. You look around, there's not many of you here. But we are never ever saying work less hard. We're never ever saying that you shouldn't pursue excellence because you've been given gifts and talents and abilities by the God who made you. And the way that you worship him is by expressing them to the best of your ability. Work hard. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But the thing to remember with all of this, whether it's your food or your wine, your white garments and your oily head, the relationships that you enjoy, the work that you do, the thing to remember, and this is key, is that they're gifts. The way you destroy all of these is by trying to find your meaning or your value in them. They're never meant to bear that weight. They'll all crumble. As I said before, if it's in a relationship, if it's somebody that you love and you want them to, to give you 
you know, your sense of identity and your value, and you don't know who you are without them, basically what you're saying is, I would like that other person to be God to me. They can't bear that weight. You might think that you love them, but you're crushing them. These are good gifts, but they won't, they won't define who you are. They were never supposed to do that. They're supposed to be the God who made you. People who try to find meaning in these things end up needing to control these things. So, if you need, if you find your meaning or your value from your friendships or from what people think of you, then, then you will become controlling in that relationship. You will at least control the things that, that they see of you and the things that they don't see. You'll need to control that because if they think badly of you, then your sense of self is shaken. You'll become controlling. Or if it's your career, you'll become controlling over the projects that you're involved in, of the people below you, of you'll become a people, a person pleaser for your boss. It's all control. Or your love life, you'll smother the other person in order to get affection. Or you'll be the one in the position of power. You'll be the one who decides. You'll be the one who throws a fit if you don't get your own way. You'll decide whether or not you give love as a reward. That's all control. But we look at verses 11 and 12. The race is not to the swift, nor battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, and so it goes on. What does all of this mean? It's example after example after example of how irrational, unfair, and chaotic our world is. Put it another way, it will not be controlled. It will not be controlled. So don't try. You can't do it. Our response to the time and chance that we see around us is just to control just a little bit. Some of you hate chaos. You love to have a plan. You hate when the plan's not there. You go on holiday and you spreadsheet out all of the things that you do. You know, you've got 9 a.m. Uh, fun. Uh, you know, ending at 9.30 a.m. when we go for a bike ride in the forest. Uh, because the world is chaotic, you'll just c- control the little bits. Like the housewife whose life is a mess, and so she cleans and cleans and cleans. Like Lady Macbeth, kind of out damn spot. Don't try to control it. You can't anyway. Just enjoy it. 